Good morning, Evergreen Church family, and welcome to the Lord's Day. I know we started talking about and referring to Sundays as the Lord's Day. It is the Lord's Day. His death, His resurrection, the day He resurrected changes everything. That's why we get together. This is why we have these big gatherings. Because tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow will also be the Lord's Day. But today is about receiving instruction. Today is receiving encouragement. Today is getting you ready to face the day tomorrow. And in, in essence, we do that by worshiping the Lord. This is about the Lord. This is about Christ Jesus. And uh, I'm so fired up to be here. So thank you for the opportunity to preach again. That's what I love to do. And um, just a little update on me. Um, I, was, I spent some of this past week at, at, the, uh, at Master Seminary. They, they graciously invite us. They love on our church by letting the, your, your pastor show up at their preaching doctoral ministry class and I get to learn a lot and there's a lot of good things that I learn about preaching so don't worry your pastor's tirelessly trying to get better as a preacher but I would say the biggest thing that I get out of this I met a pastor from Africa from Malawi I talked to a pastor from Vietnam I've spoken to pastors from Canada with their accent I see I talked to pastors from South Carolina with their accent you know what I mean? So what, what, what really hits me is that I've been a motivational junkie all my life. You know, I mean, I'm always looking for people or situations to motivate me, to inspire me, to keep me uh, being faithful. And it's in- completely motivating, inspiring to be around brothers who are around the globe trying to be faithful to the same thing, preaching the word, preaching Christ, loving on the people. And um, I just wanted to say that there is a whole church, there's a church around the world and around us as well. So anyway, that's just a little bit of encouragement how the Lord loves on us. So let's just pray as we continue the Road to the Cross series. And as I study the Road to the Cross, as we're in John, it's a lot of little dyings. You know, Pastor Dan did a good job giving me a summary of what this whole thing is. There's a lot of moments of dying for Jesus. Think about it. He had his last meal with some of his best friends, Lazarus, Mary and Martha, Mary anoints him for burial. He's coming on a donkey. He's coming to be, and he will be betrayed by his closest friends, Judas, and then all the other disciples, ultimately dying on the cross. So this is a whole downward slope of dying, but there will be a resurrection. There is a resurrection. So this is what the theme of this whole series is about Jesus going to the cross And how does that actually relate to us? So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach on John chapter 12, 19 through 26. Jesus, thank you for being the humble king who is marching to the cross right now through the scriptures. Thank you that you're building up your body through the scriptures. And Father, I thank you that you are in a collision course with different worldviews. Jesus' worldview versus the, the world. And God, I just pray that we have a clearer idea of who your son is, Jesus Christ. How he had a clear mindset of what he came to do. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that the preaching of your word would preach with conviction and power. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will fall on good soil. Ears that could hear, eyes that could see, so that we will treasure your son more, Jesus Christ, and we'll become more like him. 
Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be out of John chapter 12, verse 19, but a little bit of context, a little bit of background for those of us who weren't here last week. This is Palm Sunday, and it's Passover week, and it's millions of people have welcomed Jesus in. Jesus is coming from Bethany, riding a donkey, Okay, and he's coming from the east side of Jerusalem, going down the Kidron Valley, going up the Kidron Valley, entering the east gate or the golden gate, and entering the Jerusalem. And this is an incident that happens here. And I have a picture of this, of a, of a model that they had in, when, on my trip to Jerusalem. And this is a model of what the uh, temple looked like perhaps 2,000 years ago in the time of Christ. And there's, a, this is, there's the walls, and you see that gate on the bottom? That's the eastern gate where Jesus probably went, entered into Jerusalem. And then the, the, the uh, courtyard is the car of the court of Gentiles. This is where non-Jews were able to worship. This is where uh, uh, from other people. Well, the Jews were allowed to be closer to the Holy of Holies. The outer uh, courtyard was the court of Gentiles. Perhaps, perhaps this is where the Greeks that we're going to be introduced to here engage Philip. Perhaps. This is, maybe Jesus is in the inner courts where the Greeks cannot get to, so they're pleading with one of the disciples, hey, we love to meet Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And this is where our text lands us today. So let's rise as we honor God's word. John chapter 12. We're going to back up one verse. We're going to borrow one verse from last week, 19 through 26. This is God's word. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was, with, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Verse 26, finish up. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone, there it is, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the clearest picture of your son, Jesus Christ, through your scriptures. Your word is trustworthy, authoritative, and sufficient, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. All right, last week we talked about what a hyperbole is, right? Hyperbole is a massive exaggeration. So the, the Pharisees say, look, the whole world has gone after Jesus. And they start off as a hyperbolic uh, statement, but really as we turn to the next verse, it becomes a, very much a prophetic statement because here comes the world, the Gentiles, the Greeks are coming in verse 20, and they said they want to see Jesus. They want to come see Jesus. There's a verse 20 says, now there were some Greeks. Now is a big transitional word. All right, we're switching gears from the Jews to the Gentiles now. The Jews have, are going to reject Christ, and they have rejected Christ in large part. Now we're focusing on, onto the Gentiles. There's a big transition now. 
now. And, the, and, and the, as the Jews, in large part, do reject Christ during his time on earth, the harvest is great with the Gentiles. And eventually, God doesn't forget about his chosen people, the, the Jews. Romans 11, he'll come back around and use the Gentiles to, the Bible says they'll make the Jews jealous to bring them back. So we have a purpose even bringing back the Jewish people eventually someday. But now the focus is on the Greeks. And who are these Greeks? These are Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Okay, they're non-Jewish people who are God-fearers. Perhaps they were true uh, converts to Judaism or they just worshipped and, and they feared the monotheistic God of Israel. They're coming to, the, to Passover. You don't come to Passover that week if you don't have a purpose mind. So these are Gentiles. And, and although Rome is in control, the Roman Empire defeated the Greek Empire, the four parts of the Greek Empire, and Rome is in control, Greece has left its fingerprints and its tentacles on all of the known world. Greek, the Koinian Greek was a common language. Greek philosophy ruled. The love of learning ruled. I mean, the Romans loved Greco, uh, the Greek way of thinking. And so these Greeks, these Gentiles, represented the world outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, perhaps. And this sermon, this text, is about how does Jesus build up his body? Here we go now. Jesus is on the road to the cross. Now, how does Jesus actually build up his body? This is where we look at the way of Christ. This is how probably none of us in this room would have designed it, but this is how Jesus had a path that the Father had for him, and he's obeying here. Point number one, the way of Christ. Jesus uses his body to grow his body. What do you mean by that, Pastor Rocky? Verse 21, then... They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee. They, the Gentiles, the Greeks, comes to Philip. Why did they choose Philip? I mean, Philip is a, is a Greek name, but that, that was very common for many people to have Greek names. He was from Galilee. You know, there's more Gentiles up in that area. But I believe that the reason why the Greeks came to Philip, because they recognized Philip being with Jesus. They saw him following with Jesus. They saw him sitting under the teaching of Jesus. And this kind of goes back to us here today. Do others recognize you as a follower of Christ? Do they recognize that your way of thinking, the way that you talk, the way that you live, the way that you invest your money, the way that you are honest at work or at the school place is completely countercultural? And go, hmm, there's something about this person. I remember when I was coaching, people would come to me and I stopped becoming the Asian guy, becoming the Jesus guy, became the Christian coach, you know. And it was a, there was no agenda, it was just living out life for Christ. Not perfectly, but hopefully genuinely. And how you live will scream to a world that's watching, have you been with Christ? Have you sat with Christ? I believe the Greeks saw Philip as that, and they go, hey, we recognize him as being with that Jesus person. Perhaps we could meet him through them. And I'll just say this much. As you live counterculturally, as you live for Christ, do not, hear me now, do not disappoint the people that come to you. They may not overtly say, hey, we want to know more about Jesus. They might. That's the easy one. That's a softball pitch. You better swing. 
Just make contact and swing as hard as you can. Tell them who Christ is. But they also may come. My experience has mostly been a coach or Rocky. Um, I got this situation. I got this going on in my life. And think about it now. Think about it. If somebody comes to you with an issue and they trust you to talk about these things, give yourself a little credit that they recognize something different in you. So my word of encouragement to our church family is don't let them down. Don't give them some secular uh, encouragement. Don't just pat them on the back. Ah, it'll be okay. You'll be fine. Minimally pray for them. Take them to Scripture. Share and preach the gospel as God leads you. Give them Christ. Don't let them down. God is opening up an opportunity for you to talk about Christ. I'm kind of shy, so I mean, believe it or not, I'm kind of shy, believe it or not. And, and I've been trying to jog around La Puente and, 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 and during my breaks, and I have a pocket full of business cards, and I'm trying to hand them out and trying to, hey, I'm the new pastor in town, come visit our church. I'm trying to do all that, but naturally, I'm pretty shy. So when they come to me, it's like, oh, wow, this is perfect. Let me just talk a little bit. Then you know, you know where this conversation is ending up someday. It's ending up on Christ. So don't let them down. That's my encouragement. Give them Christ. And then Philip and talks to Andrew, and eventually uh, they come to Jesus right here. And then point number two here, the way of Christ. Jesus uses his body to grow his body. Point number two, Jesus says that he must die and rise for his body. Verse 23 says, And Jesus answered him, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does this mean, Pastor? What does this mean for pa- uh, 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 Jesus to be glorified? He, he makes it very clear in the next verse with the illustration. But in essence, Jesus talked about his death, his resurrection, and ascension back to, to heaven, where he has his full glory on display. Death resurrection, and then ascension back into heaven. Right here, verse 24, he makes it very clear. He gives us an illustration. Truly, truly. He says, listen up. You heard me correct, disciples. Or I don't know if the Greeks were around or if it's just Philip and Andrew. But he goes, truly, truly, whoever's listening, he goes, listen up. You heard me right. I have to die. And here's an agrarian illustration. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I remember, I mean, some of you guys know my background. My dad's a gardener and was a gardener for, I don't know, close to 50 years. And during Christmas vacations, okay, that wasn't vacation for me and my brothers. You know, as some of you guys know who have a lawn, during the wintertime, some of your lawn turns brown, right? And some of our customers, you know, they want a green lawn during this winter season. So what we had to do is, you know, get bags of seeds, pour it into the spreader, uh, and then we would just spread the seeds and put on rental ryegrass and get cow manure and uh, into a roller and we'd uh, evenly coat the, the lawn. That's what we did. And so that's the, I guess that's the uh, closest picture I have for how we would do seeds. But, you know, I had my wife, Charlotte, go to the store and get an avocado. I said, you know what, I can't hold up a little grain of wheat here where you can't see. So avocados have big seeds, right? It's like a golf, <laughs> golf ball size seed here. Last night I cut it and pulled out the seed and I just threw the rest in the, in the fridge. But this morning I ate half of it for breakfast, put some shoyu on it and ate it. But 
But in essence, what Jesus is saying is this, if you keep this golf ball-sized seed with you and you just put it on your mantle at, on, the, on the fireplace, eventually it's just going to collect dust and we're probably going to throw it away. So one of the kids is going to take it and it's going to be gone. It's not going to produce any more fruit. What Jesus is saying, if perhaps if the conditions are right, you plant this guy into the dirt, and it's not too dry, not too wet, but has the right amount of moisture where the outer seed coat starts to decompose and dies. It, and then it, and the inners gets to interact with the chemicals in the soil. And it takes roots and it sprouts up and it becomes a mature tree. Then it produces avocados. This is what Jesus is saying. Unless I die, there will be no harvest of souls. This is what Christ is talking about. It isn't good enough that Christ lived a perfect life. It isn't good enough that Christ taught good morals and did miracles and helped people and taught like no other. It isn't good enough. Jesus is saying, I have to die, resurrect, and ascend back in order to be a fruit. And what is this fruit talking about? As I was looking at the, studying the Gospel of John backwards, John 4, 35, 36, you could turn there if you want, talks about fruit. And this is a story where um, the uh, Samaritan woman at, woman at the well, Jesus encounters her, chapter 4, and she, he basically reads her mind and tells her all the sins that she's been doing. She goes, whoa, and she's convinced, wow, there's something different. Are you a prophet? He goes, no, 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 no. He, he did something special for that Gentile woman that he hasn't done for any man, woman, any Jew, this is the first time in Scripture where Jesus says, I am the Messiah to somebody. And he chose a, a Gentile Samaritan woman to say that to. And this woman is blown away. She goes back to Sychar and tells everyone, you got to see this man. I found the Messiah. And there's a bunch of people that come. And this is where verse 35 of chapter 4 says, and Jesus and the disciples are looking on. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, like, look, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. I could almost see Jesus seeing these heads of Samaritans coming to them. The harvest is here. I see the, the heads of wheat coming for the harvest. And in verse 3, it says, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. This fruit we're talking about is the harvest of souls. This fruit we're talking about is building up Jesus' church, building up Jesus' body. And I find that very interesting that this whole concept of fruit is brought on to the Gentile Greeks as well now. And Jesus has made a switch now. He's talking about, all right, we, we gave the Gent Jews their shot. Now we're focusing on the Gentiles, the Greek think thinking world. And but I, verse 23 was kind of an interesting verse for me because um, in verse 22 prior, Philip and Andrew come, hey, we got this group of Greeks that want to meet you, Jesus. Jesus didn't say yes. He didn't say no. He didn't say I'm busy. He didn't, he didn't say anything. He just goes all into, I got to die and, and resurrect and be glorified. What, was Jesus being indirect? What, I don't think so. Absolutely not. In essence, Jesus is giving Philip and Andrew, if the Greeks were there, even the Greeks, the saving message. 
So when people come to you about, hey, I want to know more about your faith. I want to know more about Christ. I want to know about your God. I want to know more about your church. I want to know about your life. Do not miss the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. That's the essence of Jesus. I have to die and resurrect. And in essence, I think uh, Jesus is training Philip and Andrew. This is the message that you need to take to the Gentile world and to others. He's telling about his death and resurrection. And this is the mindset of Christ. His whole mind is focused in on dying. It's game time now for Jesus. He knows he's in the last week of his earthly life, and he's about to enter into the hardest thing that he needs to do. This is why he left heaven's throne to die. And he's making it clear to his disciples, and he's also getting the word out early to the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting that we're dealing with Greeks here, and my trip to Israel... Uh, in 2018 was very uh, telling about how powerful the Greek culture was in, in that era. And here's some pictures here. This is uh, a picture took in, uh, taken in Zippori, a town about four miles northwest of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And some people believe that Joseph, who we all know was a carpenter, the original language is tecton, probably better translated builder, because in Nazareth there aren't many trees. All right, for a carpenter, you need to deal with wood. There, wasn't, there weren't many trees. It's pretty dry. But there were a lot of stone. There's a lot of stone and rock to, to build things. And, and some scholars believe this is where Joseph got most of his gainful employment by helping build up this city, this beautiful city. And in this city, there was a synagogue there, and there was a mosaic. And on this first picture that I have of the mosaic, this mos- a synagogue is a place where Jews worshipped. All right, it's like their church, their local church site. And I found this picture of a Greek centaur. What is a centaur? Just like the picture may look like, it's a half man, half horse Greek mythological character. I was like, what is this doing in a synagogue? That doesn't seem to make sense. And here, and in the centerpiece of the of the mosaic, and the mosaic had other biblical accounts like Abraham and Isaac and things like that. But it, right in the middle was this picture. It was a Greek zodiac. And in the middle is a god, the sun god Helios. I mean, what in the world are these Greek gods doing in a synagogue? It's as if we had like, you know, like right there by the cross, like a, maybe like a, um, G, the cross would be there and like, you know, you go to your favorite fall place and there's like a, a, a golden Buddha or something. And we, put, we place one of those there. You'd be like, huh, pastor, that doesn't seem right. How did this happen in the synagogue? How will they allow this to happen? That just shows you how immersed the people were with the Greek way of thinking. This is just normal. It just, it's like that frog that sits in that boiling water over time. You just don't notice. It just became normal to allow these sort of things into the synagogue. And I believe that Jesus is getting ready to smash their worldview right now. He talks about his death and resurrection and in point number three, the first thing, again, I'm going to say the way of Christ. Jesus uses his body to grow his body. Jesus must die and rise for his body. Point number three, Jesus calls his body to die with him. Let me read verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. What does that mean? I mean, cross-referencing scripture, let's look at Luke 14. This gives us more clarity in what this means. Luke 20, uh, 14, 26. 
I'll back up one verse to 25 there. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, People were coming after Jesus. There were crowds around him, even back then, probably more. And then, just like the Greeks were looking for Jesus, and look what he says. He says the same thing. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. After that, he talks about counting the cost of following Christ. So what does this mean, Pastor? What does this mean that he who loves his life loses it? He who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. In other words, you have to love Christ first and foremost above any, everything else. Your love for your wife, your kids, your work, your job, uh, the sport that you love, is hate. looks like hatred in compared to how much you love Christ. Where Christ dominates and is infiltrate all areas of your life. So obviously Jesus isn't saying to hate your mother and father. He says honor your father and mother. Jesus isn't saying hate your wife and your children. Obviously not. But compared to your love for Christ, it may look like hatred. Basically, Jesus is putting everything in order. Jesus first and everything else. In essence, I'd go far as to say this. The scripture is saying, if you love your family more than Christ, you genuinely love your family more than Christ, you're probably not a Christian. Right? Just like me, though, I mean, there's a tension. I mean, I get it. There's a tension. I love my wife, my kids. I love Christ. There's a tension. But if you could clearly say, no, 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 Jesus is kind of like third, second or third in my life, you're probably not a Christian, per Jesus' own words here. And then verse 26, here, let's look down to verse 26 at the first part. And this is where he drops the bomb on, on the people here. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. I'm going to die. And if you want to be with me, if you, like the Greeks said, we wish to see Jesus. If you really want to be with Jesus, if you want to be with me, you need to live as I do. You need to go the way of Christ. You need to carry your own cross. And basically, this is a charge to get on the road to the cross as well. Likelihood, it may not cost our lives. Likelihood, it may not. It might. There's brothers and sisters around the world, as I talked to you about the pastors that I met from around the world, where they do face life and death imprisonment situations. Okay? But in America, there's a good chance it'll be other things. Are you willing to die to the American dream? Are you willing to die to your own comforts? Are you willing to die to some of your plans and live sacrificially financially to support the work of the church? You're on your road to the cross. And like I said, I, I talked about this collision course. It's like two trucks lined up against each other on full speed, and you cannot have it both ways. One of the trucks is going to win in your life right now. And let me give you a little bit of a picture here uh, between the two worldviews. World views. In my um, studies, I said, okay, what was, this, what was the prevailing mentality of, of the Greeks during this time, or, or the Gentiles in this time, and time of Christ? A guy named Epicurus came up. Epicurus was a, a second, third century B.C. Greek philosopher, and his idea of thinking was dominant during this time. Paul actually uh, engages the Epicureans and the Stoics in Acts 17, if you remember, in Athens. So this, this was like the prevailing way of thinking. 
And the Greek philosopher taught that this life is all there is, all right? You only live once. You might as well live it up. If it feels good, do it, all right? Avoid what hurts. Avoid it at all costs. And there is no God. The gods are just a distraction on how you live. So you may be asking yourself, Pastor, like, why are you talking to us about Epicureanism with us today, right? What is this? Where is Epicurus in, in, in John 12? Well, getting into the mentality of the Greeks, just understanding how they thought. I also believe that Epicureanism is alive and well today. It just has a different name. It has a different name. This is our modern worldview. You know, like I said, the Greek influence has left its fingerprints on our, on our culture and society. And self-awareness is critical for, to grow. You have to know where you're at. You have to know what the, where the battle is at so that you could grow properly. And like I mentioned earlier, is it the American dream substituting itself for Epicureanism? The pursuit of happiness, comfort, prosperity. I want to be, have pleasure. I'm going to align all my ducks in a row so that I could secure these things, perhaps. And, but Jesus calls us for something else. This is a different thing. This is a different charge he gives us. He didn't, he didn't call us to live this type of lifestyle. He calls us to prioritize everything under him. He calls us to die to our own ambitions, perhaps. He calls us to die to our own comfort, our own rule of our lives. Here's an example. Life in the church globally, but maybe even at Evergreen, all right? This type of mentality hinders genuine Christian fellowship. You know how we've been talking a lot about that growing in our fellowship with one another? To know each other? Do you have two or three friends that, that know you and your darkest fears and hurts and sin issues and your joys as well? Do, do, do two or three people know you that well here as you're sitting here right now? Because Epicurus advised people to avoid close friendships. Epicurus advised people to avoid falling in love. Why? Why? Aren't close friendships bring a lot of pleasure? And doesn't falling in love with a spouse bring pleasure? Absolutely. But it also creates the biggest opportunities to have the biggest pains in your life. So perhaps, I mean, are you... Here, sitting here today, not wanting to avoid rejection. Man, if they knew who I was, there's no way they would be my friend. Perhaps. Or have you, perhaps you're just like, man, I'm not going to get close to somebody because I don't want to be betrayed. I don't want to get betrayed. This type of mentality creates a, more of a privatized life in our, in our, in our church. This is an enemy to having deep fellowship, growing in the body of Christ as we grow closer to Christ. This is an enemy to all those things. And, I don't know, things like, you know, if, if I don't get to know anyone, then they can't hurt me. That, that's a very Epicurean way of thinking. That definitely is. That's not Jesus' way of thinking. And I don't know, for, for you guys, for me, it's happened. Have you ever tried to help someone and they, they turned on you? Have you actively discipled someone, shared your life with them, shared your, 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 your deepest struggles, and all of a sudden, boom, they turn on you. They, they stop showing up. Uh, they, start, they start gossiping about you, what you shared about them. I mean, these are very painful things. 
this is way different from the guy acting crazy with you at the gas station and you're like, man, that guy's weird and you drive off. This is someone who knows you, grabs your heart and steps on it and then looks, hands it back to you and walks away. This is painful. This is very risky. This is a very risky way of living, but Jesus tells us this is how we're supposed to live. This is true Christian loyalty when you're able to speak to so truth in love with somebody because you care so much about them. You're, almost will, you're willing to risk your friendship with them because you're speaking the truth and love to them. The other way of peacekeeping or just self-preservation is a selfish way of thinking. That's Epicurean. That's very worldly. That's very Greek way of thinking. Like, oh, I ain't gonna, I'm not going to give this friendship up. You know, we may not go deep, but you know, we're going to be pleasant. We're going to maintain peace. That's not Christian fellowship. That's not Christian. That's worldly fellowship. Let me read to you uh, 1 Peter here. I don't think it's up there, but if you want to turn to me, 1 Peter 3, 13. And I, I think perhaps Peter was there listening to this too. Perhaps Peter was there as one of the 11 or 12 listening to this. This is just blows my mind away how some of these things are so connected. 1 Peter 3.13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? You're just doing the right thing. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But this is it. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to set you apart as number one boss in my heart, number one king in my heart. But look what happens when you live this way, brothers and sisters. Look what happens when you sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and you do what's right constantly, even if it may cost you. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence, oftentimes this verse is used for uh, apologetics. And I took an apologetics course to kind of defend the faith. But look, people are watching you. It's like, wow, that person is living sacrificially. There's something different about him. Let me go talk to him or her. Do not disappoint them when they come to you. Tell them about Christ. He is the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Let me just keep going. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, people may talk bad about you. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. Continue to do what's right. Continue to live sacrificially. Even if it may cost you, do what's right. Sanctify Christ Jesus as the Lord of your heart. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're talking about. But I want to give good news here. I'm going to, we're going to end up here with some very good news here. Look at what verse six, uh, 26 says, going back to John 12, if you're not there, turning back to John 12, verse 26. Look at what it says. Keep in mind, the Pharisee says, look, the world has gone after him. Verse 26, the first part says, if anyone... You hear that? Two words, if anyone. Unqualified. Doesn't, mean, doesn't matter if you're a Jew. Doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're educated, uneducated. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, man or woman. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Jesus opens up the gates of heaven to all the world. Is that not encouraging? 
And if he didn't do that, we, none of us would be in here, or most of us wouldn't be in here, I would guess. If anyone, the Bible says, I love that. And the final point here, point four, I'm just going to review again the three, three prior points. The way of Christ, Jesus uses his body to grow his body. Jesus said he must die for his body. Jesus calls his body to die with him in verse four. I mean, point number four, Jesus glorifies his body. This is the greatest encouragement here, brothers and sisters. I could, I could be up here saying, you know what? You got to die. You got to die. You got to die. You got to die. Who wants to join that club? Right? I mean, I, I, I was a recruiter for like, I don't know, 10 years for the University of Southern California. When we recruit student athletes come, we say, hey, you got to get a great education. You're going to get tutoring. We're gonna, you're going to have a play with great teammates. You're going to have a chance to win championships. You're going to have a chance to play in the National Football League. You're going to meet a lot of great co- contacts. We didn't say, hey, by the way, you come here, you're going to die. Right? I mean, that's, that's not how the world recruits. If this is a recruiting spiel by Jesus, Obviously, he didn't read the, the manual that Epicurus sent out. You know what I mean? And so Jesus is saying, this is the way I have said to live. However, this is the greatest point. You cannot leave if you, without understanding this point. Otherwise, all this stuff will be fatalism. All this stuff will be hopeless. Jesus says this in second part of verse 26. Where I am, there my servants will be also. Does that not lift your heart up? We get to be with Jesus. If anyone, there's that, those two words again, serves me, look what happens, comma, the Father will honor him. Did you catch that? God will honor you in eternity as you get to be with his son, Jesus Christ. Heaven is, this is describing heaven. Heaven is we get to be with Jesus and we will be honored by the Father. Heaven is being with Jesus and we will be honored by the Father. I have no idea. I can't even begin to tell you what that might be like. Well done, good and faithful slave, perhaps something like that, but it's going to be more than I could describe. Heaven is being with Christ and being honored by the Father. Without Christ, dying is hopeless. That's why this is the key part of this whole uh, talk that Jesus gives. Without Christ, dying is fatalism. It's suicidal. It doesn't make sense. That's Epicureanism. If you're, if you're Epicurean and you're asked to die, it's like, oh, I die and that's it. There's nothing else. Why would I give this up? But with Christ, dying is hopeful. Certain hope. With Christ, dying is glorious as we get to be with him. The way of Christ is death. And it it may or may not cost us our lives, but it it will cost us our own will, our own desires. And guess what happens? You get to win more to Christ as you live like this. You get to build up rewards in heaven. God will use you to win more. To Christ, as Paul talks about. I become a slave to us to win more to Christ. I become a slave. What, Paul? All that education, all that pedigree, all that status? No, I become a slave to all to win more to Christ. That's dying. That's dying. That's a dying mentality. But he knew what he was competing for, to win more to Christ. 
Epicurus taught that pleasure is the chief goal and to bless yourself is the main thing. Self-preservation. Jesus teaches that becoming like him is the goal. The more you suffer for Christ, the more you will know him. So, uh, Philippians 3.10 says, the more you suffer for Christ, you, you choose to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart and you suffer for him, you'll know him more because our Lord suffered the most. You'll share in that suffering. And number two, you'll become more like Christ. And this, as we've talked about over and over and over again, our goal at Evergreen SGV is to become like Christ. That's why we're all here. That's why we're all here. But think about the immense rewards there. To know him and to become more like him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this time to preach on John 12. Jesus, thank you that you had this clear message for Philip and Andrew and maybe the Greeks and really for all of us at Evergreen SGV over 2,000 years later that the, your way, the way of Christ is, is death and you are faithfully on your march to the cross right now. Help us to enter into that with you. Help us to understand more what that means. And by your grace, allow us to say with full conviction, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Help us to echo Paul's words there where we own this. This is genuinely us. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that we would just be encouraged by one another. That we won't think like Epicurus. We won't think like the way of the world. We will think like your son, Jesus Christ, and how he calls us to live. Father, allow me to bless the church family here as we're gathered together, Lord. I pray for a great blessing upon those who are going, undergoing suffering right now. It could be a physical suffering. It could be a relational suffering, as we talked about. It could be some kind of persecution at the work or the school site. It could be loss of friendship because of their claim of Christ. I pray for great joy to well up in their hearts right now, that they'll enjoy the fruit and the peace that comes of uh, sanctifying Christ Jesus as Lord in our hearts. I pray, Lord, please minister to these right now. It could be our single parents in our congregation wondering what happened. I pray for encouragement to come their way right now through your spirit and through the body of Christ here at Evergreen SGV, San Gabriel Valley. Father, I pray, Lord, for the people here. Help us to keep going tomorrow. Help us to get out of bed tomorrow and to live for you. Help us have a clear conviction of that Jesus Christ, you have died and you have resurrected and you are ascended and you are coming back. And that moment, that first Lord's Day defines everything in our lives. So God, I pray for encouragement for all of us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we will have realistic expectations on how you call us to live. You call us to die for you. And you call us to do this for your glory, to the expansion of your kingdom by building up your body, and for us individually to be built up and sanctified, to look more like you. I pray this for our church family, Lord, that we will be able to meet situations head on with courage and conviction. Give us the courage, Lord. Give us the conviction because your words is true. That we have you waiting for us in heaven and we have the honor of the Father waiting to be poured out on us.
Lord, I pray that will be more real to us. I pray, Lord, that heaven will be so real that we'll be absolutely useful to you down here on earth. God, please bless our church family. Please bless every one of us where we're at right now. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.